Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 to chapter 6 verse 3. The 16th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on February 1st, 2015 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 7 Translation, Installment 4, accompanies this talk. We're in the book of Hebrews. We're going to begin an interlude in the book today, and we'll finish that interlude next week. We began last week the primary argument of the book, and he had his opening section of the primary argument of the book. In the primary argument of the book, well, let me back up. So remember that the focus of the entire book is to persuade Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah but now are beginning to rethink that, and they're beginning to rethink that for a couple of reasons, but the primary reason is the Messiah got himself killed, and that's not a very Messiah-like thing to do, so maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah after all. That's the rethinking that they're beginning to do, and out of that doubt that that creates, they're beginning to abandon their belief in the Messiah Jesus and just return back to the Judaism of their families and of their background. So the primary argument of the book focuses especially on the issue of Jesus' death. Why did the Messiah have to die? Why does it make sense that the Messiah was crucified? How should we make any sense out of that at all? And in order to make sense out of that, Paul goes to Psalm 110, and he's going to engage in a fairly detailed and thorough exegesis of Psalm 110 in order to show us that the Old Testament scriptures predicted in advance that the Messiah was going to play a very, very distinctive role. It's described in Psalm 110 as being a high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. And what he's going to argue is, if he was going to be a high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek, what follows from that is that he was going to have to offer an offering, because every high priest has an offering that he has to offer. And what was that offering except for him, his own life, his own body, given to God as a gift? So that's where he's going, but he's going to argue the case in some may think excruciating detail, but he's going to make the case for that in a significant amount of detail. So right off the bat, and this is what we looked at last week, right off the bat, he starts talking about a high priest. In the Mosaic Covenant, a high priest is appointed by God, and you can only serve as a high priest if you are appointed by God. A high priest, his role, his very distinctive role, is to offer up an offering for the sins of the people. So that's the role of the high priest. And therefore, it follows that a high priest is under obligation to offer an offering for the sins of the people. If a high priest did not offer an offering for the sins of the people, then he wouldn't be a high priest. He wouldn't be functioning as a high priest. 
So right from the get-go, he's setting us up for the more detailed and thorough argument he's going to make. Jesus, as the Messiah, was appointed by God to the role of high priest. As a high priest, he had to offer an offering for sins of the people, and he was under obligation to do so. So his death on the cross, being that offering for sins that he offered up, shouldn't surprise us. And it shouldn't be held against him as something that a Messiah wouldn't do because he says, what about Psalm 110? Of course he had to offer up sins. He was a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So he was under obligation to do that. So the section that we looked at is committed to that or devoted to that, to making those three points. And then he ends that section, if you remember, let me read it. Although he was the son... He learned obedience from the things that he suffered, and having been rendered completely qualified to all who obey him, he became the one responsible for their salvation in the age to come, since he had been designated by God as high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. That's his last statement. He had been designated by God as high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. Now, at that point, Paul goes off on a tangent. And it's that tangent we're going to look at today and next week. So let me start reading, and I'll read the portion that I think we will get to today. This is 511 in your normal Bibles. This is paragraph 21 in my translation. Concerning this, our explanation will be lengthy and difficult to convey because you have become unresponsive to God's messages. Now indeed, because of the amount of time you have followed Jesus, though you ought to be teachers, You have need for someone to teach you again the elements of the beginning of God's revelations. Indeed, you have become those who have need of milk and not of solid food. Now, everyone who is a partaker of the milk is not conversant in the matter of dikaiosune. Indeed, he is an infant, and the solid food is for the mature, for those who, as a matter of habit, have senses that have been trained for the discernment of good and bad. Therefore, leaving behind the account that constitutes the beginning of an understanding of the Messiah, let us press on to completeness in our understanding of him, not again laying a foundation of repentance from death, causing deeds, and of belief in God, a foundation of instruction about ritual washings and about the laying on of hands, and about the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come, and this we will do if God permits." Now, with regard to those who have once been enlightened, to be specific, those who have experienced the gift from heaven and have been made to be sharers in the work of the Holy Spirit, even those who have experienced the wonderful pronouncement of God and the accompanying supernatural confirmatory signs with regard to the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, insofar as they again, in their own right, choose to make a public example of the Son of God by crucifying him. Now land that drinks the rain that often comes upon it and gives birth to pasture useful to those for whom it is in fact being cultivated, this land receives a blessing from God. But if the land bears thorns and thistles, it is disapproved and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. And I don't think we'll get much beyond that today, so I'll stop there. Okay, he starts paragraph 21, 511, verse, chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning this, our explanation will be lengthy and difficult to convey. Now, what is the this? 
I think that this, he's using as his launching pad the last thing he said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's going to cite that a number of times throughout the rest of the book. That's the big deal to him. That's the this that he wants to unpack in his argument. What does it mean that Jesus is a high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek? What does that mean? And not only what does it mean, but what are the implications of that? What are the ramifications of that? If he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, what does that suggest for what the role of the Messiah that God has purposed it to be, what that role is? That's all that he wants to explain to us. But before he gets on with explaining to us what it means for Jesus to be the high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek, he stops here. I've got a lot I need to say about that. He says, our explanation will be lengthy and difficult to convey. I have a lot to say, and it's going to be hard to argue my case. It's going to be hard to make my case to you because, he says, you have become unresponsive to God's messages. I've translated it unresponsive. It's difficult to know how to translate it exactly to capture exactly the nuance that I think Paul has in mind here because there's no one word that really that I've been able to land on that actually does it. The word basically means lazy, uh, slothful, and slow to a certain extent. That's the kind of the root meaning of the Greek word. You've become slow. You've become lazy. You've become slothful. But what he has in mind is, is the reason it's going to be difficult to convey what it is that I want to convey to you is because you're kind of slow-minded right now. You're not very agile intellectually right now. So I translated it unresponsive because you're not the kind of people who are quick to follow the argument, to understand what God is saying to you, to understand the implications of what God is saying to you, and own it, embrace it, and incorporate that in your life. That's not where you're at right now. And not being those kinds of people, the kind of sophisticated, subtle arguments that I'm going to make, you're going to be kind of dense to them. You're just not going to seem real smart. And for that reason, I'm going to have to work really hard to try to press the points that I want to make. And by God's grace, hopefully you'll follow. Hopefully you'll understand. But I know it's going to be an uphill battle because you're being kind of unresponsive right now. This is a critical piece. He doesn't expound on it. That's all he says. It's going to be difficult to explain this, and I'm going to have to take some time doing it because you're intellectually lazy. You're intellectually slothful. You're slow-witted right now. But clearly in the background is Paul's understanding, as you see throughout the whole New Testament, of a certain kind of what a philosopher would call epistemology, a certain theory of how knowledge and understanding and belief works in human experience. And in the Bible, they see a clear connection between intellectual agility and moral and spiritual willingness and openness, readiness. If I'm ready to hear the truth from God, I'm going to find myself much more intellectually nimble in grasping the concepts that I need to grasp and grasping the teaching that is put before me than if I'm not open and ready to understand. The Bible never spells out the mechanism for that. 
It only assumes the reality of that. I think we all know to a certain extent the mechanism from our own experience. Sometimes you just feel yourself blocking ideas, right? Have you ever experienced that? Where you literally make yourself deliberately dense? Because if I don't want to come to a certain conclusion, it would be better to come to no conclusion at all than to come to the conclusion that I don't want to come to. And in the human heart is this kind of allergy to God, this allergy to God and his promises and his purposes and his agenda. We were really not automatically open and receptive to it. And for that reason, in some part of our being, we know that if I follow the arguments and if I follow the evidence and if I face the truth, that's going to require that I bow my knee to God as my creator, that I recognize his purposes as good, I recognize his claims as true, all those things are going to have to happen, and the allergy in me doesn't want that to happen. And the end result is there's this phenomenon where I just kind of go brain dead. I'm not able to follow the arguments or see the evidence for what it is. Because if I did that, that would put a demand on me. The clearest example of that teaching anywhere, and I think we've looked at it in the past, but it was probably a, a long time ago, is that really weird fable that Jesus teaches. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it wanders through waterless places seeking rest. But then when it can't find any, it returns to the man. And when it gets there, he finds the house unoccupied, empty, and put in order. And he goes out and finds seven unclean spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Just a totally bizarre parable. But I think it's an allegory. It's an allegory that Jesus is telling. And it's an allegory about this very phenomenon that we have a spirit of unbelief in us that comes naturally to us as human beings, that it resides there. When we're faced with evidence, the context in which Jesus told that parable is he had just cast out an unclean spirit from a man and think it was, was he mute and deaf because of the unclean spirit? And he cast out the unclean spirit and the man could speak and hear. And the Pharisees, having witnessed the authority of Jesus, having witnessed this confirmatory sign, the Pharisees say to him, or say among themselves, it's by Beelzebul that he does that. He must be in league with the prince of demons. That's how come he can command demons. It can't be because he's the Messiah. That's the last thing that they're prepared to draw as a conclusion from that. So it must be Beelzebul. Jesus proceeds to tell them, that's the stupidest explanation I've ever heard. I mean, you've got to do better than that. That's ridiculous. At which point, admitting that their attempt to rationalize their unbelief didn't work. And what's their response? What would be the rational way to respond when your rationalization of something doesn't work? Well, then I guess it must be true that you are the Messiah. But their response is, well, show us a sign and then we'll believe. At which point Jesus said, no sign will be given this generation. This is an evil and wicked generation that's asking me for a sign. There ain't going to be no more signs except the sign of Jonah, the, de the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, why no more signs? I just showed you a sign. I just showed you a sign, and like in the fable, 
that spirit of unbelief, how did it respond? When it was on the threshold of being cleansed, when it was on the threshold of belief, when it was on the threshold of bowing the knee to Jesus as the Messiah, it reinforced its unbelief rather than bow the knee to the Messiah. It got seven unclean spirits more evil than itself and came in and the last state was worse than the first. That's what happened. And because that's the effect of the sign, Jesus is not interested in giving them any more signs that can only do damage and not do them any good. Because if you're not willing to be quick-witted, if you're not willing to be smart about what you're experiencing, then all the evidence, all the arguments, anything coming your way is only going to harden you in your unbelief. That's what Paul's concerned about here with the readers of Hebrews. He says, what I've seen happening among you is you're not at all being responsive to the messages that you have heard, the arguments that you have heard, the evidence that you have heard, the teaching that you have heard. What have you done with that? You've just played dumb. You've thrown dust in your own eyes so that you can't see. So it's going to be an uphill battle for me to go into an exegesis of Psalm 110 as subtle and as difficult as that's going to be to explain to you, I'm going to have a hard time doing that. Now, eventually he's going to get around to saying, but I'm going to try because I'm optimistic about you. I think better of where you're at than, than a worst-case scenario. So in hopes that you are better off than it sometimes appears that you are, I'm going to go ahead and give it a go. And so he writes the rest of the book. Being a student of the Bible forces us over time to become smarter, to become intellectually discerning, intellectually nimble. We begin to see and recognize distinctions. We begin to grasp concepts that we didn't grasp before. We begin to be clear about concepts that we couldn't have been clear about before. And why do we do it? Why are we willing to do the hard intellectual work of learning and sharpening our minds and becoming more discerning because it's worth it. Something in us says, this is the truth. This is the truth from God. This is the truth about me. This is the truth about existence. This answers the questions that I have about why I'm here and what I'm supposed to do with myself and what I'm supposed to do with my life. Well, something that important and that valuable is worth understanding. And because it's worth understanding, I'm willing to exert myself and put in the hard effort of becoming smarter, more educated, more discerning, more nimble. What Paul is describing here is the opposite that we do. And I know you know people who maybe hang around the margins of Christianity and issues come up and you present them with a challenge to their worldview. Do they take it on? Do they actually take it on and refute the challenge to their worldview? Mostly, in your experience, don't they just walk away and refuse to think about it? Refuse to even exert themselves? That's what most human beings do. That's what Christians do who are unwilling to learn their own faith. Don't bother me. I'm content with what the church told me. I'm content with the theology I've already got. You face them into what the Bible teaches that brings a challenge to their theology. And what's their response? Uh, it's too hard. You have literally heard this come out of people's mouths sometimes. Don't think that hard. You think too hard. Absolutely we think too hard. Well, not too hard. Absolutely we think hard because it's worth it. And we know that it's worth it because this is the truth. 
if there is anything in the whole universe worth understanding, it's this. And that's why we put in the effort, and that's why we exert ourselves. Thinking is some of the hardest, most strenuous things we will ever do. And doubt and confusion and lack of clarity is one of the most uncomfortable states we will ever experience. And to endure the discomfort of lack of clarity and doubt, and to do the work of allowing yourself to bring clarity out of that murky vagueness, is, that's part of what it means to be a child of God, is I'm willing to do that work and I exert myself, even though it's not comfortable and it can be very difficult. Okay, that's what he's challenging them. He's saying, I got some splaining to do, but it's going to be tough. So I'm just praying to God that it's God's will that you'll hang in there with me and follow me to the end of this. Okay, so concerning this, our explanation will be lengthy and difficult to convey because you have become unresponsive to God's messages. Now, indeed, because of the amount of time you have followed Jesus, it's literally just because of the time we have to interpret that. I think what he's meaning is now, indeed, because of the amount of time that you have followed Jesus, though you ought to be teachers, you have need for someone to teach you again the elements of the beginning of God's revelations. Okay, this is a highly significant throwaway comment that he makes. Because of the amount of time you have followed Jesus, though you ought to be teachers. Recognize what Paul has to be thinking in order to make that kind of offhanded comment. There are very, very few pastors in America today who would ever dream of making that comment. By now, after 35 years, you ought to be a teacher now. Now, why not? Because we don't think that the faith is about being a student. How many people in Christian culture think discipleship is a matter of learning, is a matter of training, is a matter of education, is a matter of being a student of a set of ideas, of a worldview, of a teaching that you must master, that you must understand, that you must come to terms with? I think relatively few people today have that perspective. What do we do as believers? We be religious. That's what we do. We do religious practices, we do religious things, we engage in religious rituals and the religious life, which doesn't take an ounce of thinking. You just do what you are programmed to do, and you just go through the motions and you just be a good Christian, right? You be a religious Christian or a pious Christian. Or alternatively, I think this is probably the prevailing view today, isn't the whole point of being a believer is that I worship God? Don't I join together with other people and have a worshipful experience in relationship to God? And I say God benefits from that. God wants that. That honors God. My enjoyment of worship is what honors God. I think that's the prevailing view. Not that there's anything wrong with using our creativity and our imagination to create music and poetry and all kinds of artistic expression to give praise to God. Of course, that's a wonderful thing to do. But what are you going to say to God when you praise him? Do you even understand the gospel, the worldview, our situation in life that we're responding to? Or do we just come up with all kinds of trite phrases that we've learned and programmed to speak to one another from our culture? You have to be a student first in order to make an artistic expression of praise to God that's meaningful and substantive and accurate in the light of the gospel. So although there's nothing wrong with it, that's not why we are believers. It's not what it means to be a disciple. Disciple means student. 
So if I'm engaged in a life of discipleship, I'm engaged in a life of study. I'm wanting to understand who Jesus is, how he fits into God's plan, who I am, how I fit into God's plan, who God is, and why he even has a plan. Those are the things that I need to understand if I'm going to understand anything. And I have to become a student exploring the answers to those questions by studying what God has taught me in that regard. That's discipleship. So obviously that's what Paul thinks we're doing as disciples. That's why he can say, by this time you ought to be teachers. By this time you ought to have enough mastery of the truth of the gospel that you could turn around and explain it to somebody else. But you guys aren't there. So whatever's been going on, you haven't been pursuing an understanding of the truth. So now indeed, because of the amount of time you have followed Jesus, though you ought to be teachers, you have need for someone to teach you again the elements of the beginning of God's revelations. Now, this is, his language is a little difficult for us to understand because there's so many options available for what are these elements and what is the beginning of God's word and what is God's word. I'm going to maintain that if we look at the whole picture here, it becomes, I think, pretty clear what he's getting at. What he's calling the beginning of God's revelations is what we would call the Old Testament, essentially. That is, the things that God has already revealed to his people, Israel, and through them, the world. The things that he's revealed to mankind already, that's the beginning of God's revelations. When Jesus comes, that's the next step in God's revelation. Jesus came and revealed things to the Jews and to mankind that had not been crystal clear in the beginning of God's revelations. It's only through Jesus that they become clear and they become clarified. And now we know the full and complete purposes of God in a way that we could have barely hoped to glean from the Old Testament, the beginnings of God's revelation. The elements of the beginning of God's revelations that he has in mind, he's going to list a handful of them a little later in the argument here. But the elements are the foundational concepts, the fundamental concepts that can be gleaned from the Old Testament. And what he has in mind specifically is, what are the fundamental concepts that you have to grasp from the Old Testament in order to be in a position to make sense out of Jesus his life, his teaching, and what he's all about. If you don't have the fundamentals, of course Jesus isn't going to make sense to you. Of course you're not going to know why Jesus had to die. Of course that won't make sense to you that the Messiah got crucified by the Romans. You don't know the fundamentals. And if you don't know the fundamentals, you're not going to see how they all find themselves resolved in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in a coherent kind of way. But you have to have the fundamentals before you can see them resolved coherently by Jesus. So what you really need is for someone to go back to the Old Testament and teach you the elementary foundational concepts all over again. Something you should already understand, but apparently you don't understand those things. So though you ought to be teachers, you have need for someone to teach you again the elements of the beginning of God's revelations. Indeed, you have become those who have need of milk and not of solid food. Now, everyone who is a partaker of the milk is not conversant in the matter of Dikaiosune. Indeed, he is an infant 
and the solid food is for the mature, for those who as a matter of habit have senses that have been trained for the discernment of good and bad. Okay, now he basically uses a metaphor. For someone who is not prepared to take a look at the life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and chew on that and be nourished by that, find the truth that is embodied in Jesus. For someone who's not able to do that, they're like an infant who needs to be nourished on milk because they're not ready for solid food. But the solid food that he's talking about is the gospel of Jesus himself. And the gospel is that is embodied in everything, all the knowledge and all the data and all the information we have from and about Jesus. That's the solid food. But he's afraid that his readers are just babies. They're just infants. And they're people who, are, who need to feed on milk and only milk instead of solid food. And so he's equating the milk with the elements of the beginning of God's revelations the fundamental foundational concepts that can be gleaned from the law, the Mosaic Covenant. That's the milk. And by being nourished by that, you grow to a point where you eventually become ready for solid food. But only after you've been adequately nourished by the milk are you ready for solid food. So that's the analogy, the metaphor that he's calling on. He ends that paragraph for those who, as a matter of... Okay, indeed... He is an infant, and the solid food is for the mature. For those who, as a matter of habit, have senses that have been trained for the discernment of good and bad. Most of your English translations probably have good and evil there. But he's not thinking of moral righteousness and unrighteousness here. He's not thinking about good and evil here. He's thinking about good thinking and bad thinking. Good ideas and bad ideas. Right thinking and wrong thinking. Your senses have to be trained for the discernment of good thinking and bad thinking. And solid food, he's saying, is for the mature, those who are so trained, who are so practiced that they are capable of recognizing the difference between a good argument and a good way of looking at things and a good picture of reality as opposed to those who who wouldn't know a a good way of looking at reality if it spit in their face. They can't tell. Until we are trained, we are suckers for specious arguments. A specious argument, an argument that sounds good, sounds compelling, sounds convincing at a certain level, but it's completely wrong, completely fallacious, completely not taking you to the truth. The world is full of specious arguments, especially when it comes to Jesus. All kinds of specious arguments get made about Jesus and the things of Jesus. We're suckers for those arguments until we train ourselves to tell the difference between a good argument and a bad argument, a good way of looking at things and a bad way of looking at things, a true perspective and a false perspective. That's the good and bad that he's talking about here. If we are trained to know the difference, then we're ready to understand Jesus. And we're ready to hear his argument from Psalm 110, in effect, is what he's saying. If we're incapable of telling the difference because we've not trained ourselves to tell the difference, we're just babies who all we can do, all we can manage is go back and get the fragments of information that the Old Testament could supply us with. We're not yet ready to put it all together in a coherent understanding of Jesus. 
backing up one sentence. He says, now everyone who is a partaker of the milk is not conversant in the matter of dikaiosune. Now, most of your translations probably have righteousness there. Again, it suggests that we're talking about some moral issue. But I left it dikaiosune because I think what he's talking about is the matter of how a person becomes pardoned in the eyes of God. That's dikaiosune. Dikaiosune is the state of God having rendered me dikaios, having decreed me dikaios before the judgment seat. You know, I come before the judgment seat, I'm either dikaios or I'm not. If I'm dikaios, God has decided I'm not going to hold your evil and your sin and your depravity against you and destroy you like you deserve. Instead, I'm going to give you the blessing of eternal life. That's the one who's dikaios. If I'm not dikaios, God has not decreed that I will be pardoned and I'm going to receive the condemnation that, I, that is my due. So dikaiosune is the state of having been decreed dikaios, pardoned. But the one who is an infant, the one who's a partaker only of milk, is not conversant in the matter of dikaiosune. Okay, what does he mean by that? The one who's a partaker of only milk is not going to have a clue how Jesus' crucifixion by the Romans has everything to do with how they get pardoned from their sins and is given the blessing of eternal life. Not going to have a clue. They won't be able to grasp it. They won't be able to put it together in a coherent kind of way. Now, if we think, we might be tempted to think, Paul, have a cow. Don't overreact. It's not that hard. Not that hard to put it together. But it is that hard to put it together. Most of us, for most of our lives, have put it together wrong. So if it's all that easy to put together, why do we have it all put together wrong? Why don't we actually understand coherently Jesus' death on the cross and what that was all about? We've told ourselves stories about what it does and what it accomplishes, but they're not stories that are good. They're bad stories. We didn't have the ability to discern good and bad. We weren't well-practiced enough to do that. So the church came along and loaded up our platter with a bunch of stuff, and we swallowed it. We took it right in. We didn't have the ability to discern, does this make sense of all the evidence and everything the Old Testament taught and everything that Jesus said and everything the apostles taught and everything that they reflected on about him? Is that really what's going on or not? But we had to educate ourselves, and we had to become sharper in our discernment to be able to recognize the good from the bad in what had been handed us by Christian culture and Christian tradition. So Paul is right to say what he says. If you're only a partaker of milk, you're not equipped to be knowledgeable and understanding and conversant in the matter of dikaiosune by belief in Jesus. I I think that's implied in what he's saying. Okay, let me pause there for any questions or comments you might have. Thanks, Jack. I think the last thing you said helped me put it together a little bit better, but I just want to make sure that I'm following what Paul's saying here about the milk. So it seems like there's nothing bad about being someone who needs milk and better about being someone who needs solid food. The problem is that by this time, they should have solid food, but they still need milk. Exactly. That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. What was confusing me is, him saying, if you just have milk, you don't understand about Dikaiosune, which would make it seem like if you just have the law and the Old Testament, you don't really get 
to Caius, you know, but I think you solve that by saying it's that piece of how Jesus fits into the attainment of Dikaiosune. I'm sorry, yeah. Of how Jesus fits into the attainment of Dikaiosune, or whatever you call it. Right, yeah, exactly. Okay. And we have to keep in mind, it's not knowledge that saves us. So we don't have to get Jesus at all to be saved. There have been plenty of famous people in the Old Testament who are going to go and get a blessing of eternal life in the eternal kingdom of God who know nothing about Jesus and have no coherent picture about how somebody named Jesus fits into the picture. So God just saves the people he wants to have mercy on, and he has mercy upon whomever he wants to have mercy. But if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I've become a student of Jesus, and one of the things that Jesus offers is an understanding of the larger picture of how everything that God is doing in history and has done in history, how it fits together in a coherent kind of way. And that's what he's talking about. Now, the only reason that's spiritually significant is if you ask the question, and why have you not got it yet? Is there an unwillingness? Are you not wanting to understand? Are you not wanting the truth to be the truth? Are you not wanting Jesus to be the Messiah? Is that your problem? That's not just a failure to arrive intellectually, that's a spiritual problem that can potentially condemn me because my rebellion against God and my allergy to God is unchecked by a spirit of eagerness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness and hungering and thirsting after God. It's not checked by that. Thanks, that makes more sense. The other thing, when you were talking about the problems that Christian culture has kind of made for itself with not understanding, not being conversant in the scripture and understanding. I thought that what you said rang true. And another part of that that I've seen recently going to churches, the other side of that is saying, well, we'll study the Bible and we'll be disciples and we'll have classes and we'll learn about the fundamentals, but it's easy. Like in a six-week class, you can learn all there is to know Mm -hmm. to be biblical and you can teach other people that and you can go spread the gospel just come take this class and then reinforce that weekly with going to church and having small groups in your house and going to Bible study group. So it's not so much a a matter of they wouldn't say they're not being students, they're working really hard, but it's more we all get it, let's just keep reinforcing it because it's easy to lose. Like Mm -hmm. I would forget or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And notice that what we typically teach is not the Bible, even though we call it a Bible study. We're not typically teaching the Bible. What we're teaching is somebody's highly digested synopsis of something in the Bible. And nothing wrong with that if it's accurate and true and leads me deeper into the Bible. But often it's not accurate. And even if it's accurate, that's no place to stay. It should lead us further and deeper into an understanding of what the Scripture teaches. Because it's there that we train our senses to discern the good from the bad. I guess I was going to ask you to maybe back up and clarify your last comments there. I know that you have a real strong perspective on the nature of the atonement and how that stuff works together. It sounded to me like your exhortation to us there based on the the stuff about discerning good and bad and so forth was that his point was somehow that if you don't do this, you're not going to come to your perspective on the atonement. Is that what you see the issue as being here? Is that That's that... not the issue, although that's true. <laughs> okay. 
But no, that's not the issue. The, the issue is, see, you, I think, are not persuaded of my view of the atonement. That's true. But you're willing to engage in dialogue. You're willing to confront it and think about it and challenge it and wonder about it. And you're willing to enter into training yourself to discern whether it's good or bad. That that's a task you're willing to take on. How many people in Christian culture would not even take that task on? They're going to dismiss it. I've never heard that before. End of effort. That's not what our creed says. End of effort. No further thought. Why would I think any further? That's the issue for me. Okay, so I can see that's the issue that you have when you look at Christian culture. I guess I'm asking, how would you articulate what he would describe as the issue? I mean, why is he saying this to them here? What is his problem with what they're doing? Because somebody, I think he's aware that they haven't necessarily had these objections that are being raised against Jesus being their Messiah emerge just out of their own, the depths of their own being. They're talking to each other. There are people making arguments. There's people offering reasons why Jesus is not the Messiah. And what has their response been? Jesus can't be the Messiah. The Romans crucified him. Oh, yeah, the Romans crucified him. Jesus can't be the Messiah. Just like that scene in Star Wars, there are no droids in this right. <laughs> in the spaceship. You know? right. Just all they have to do is hear someone, give them a reason, and that becomes their reason not to believe. Well, did you stop to think about whether that's a good reason or not? Not if you don't want to believe you don't. You're just ready, you're right there, ready to accept an argument or a piece of evidence or a claim that somebody's making that is, in this case, the reason for them to walk away from Jesus and go back to Judaism. Okay. Yeah. So um, now that's real clear. I, I see what you're getting at. Thanks. It's an odd detail, but it jumped out at me that he says, practice to have their senses trained. Mm-hmm. We don't discern good and bad with our senses. I'm sorry? Why didn't he use the word mind? Because the idea of discerning good and bad with our senses doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, let's see. It might have to do with the verb that he chooses. I don't remember the Greek verb here. The way I'm understanding it is he means our mind. But notice how we use perceptual metaphors all the time for intellectual understanding. Oh, I see. You explain some, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I see. Okay, I see. So we use that metaphor of sight for understanding quite readily. And I think that's what's behind this. Having our eyesight trained to see good from bad, I think that's what he has in mind. But it's, it's metaphorical. He really means our understanding to grasp it, I think. Thinking about the connection between morality and our understanding, something that you said made it sound like Paul's talking about people getting smarter or dumber, as if our IQ can somehow fluctuate. I wonder if a better way of describing it would be integrity, Mm -hmm. Um, because if understanding this requires intellectual integrity, namely that we are willing to embrace what is true with regard to the way that reality actually is, and if moral integrity is aligning yourself with what is right and wrong in reality, living that way, then you can't have intellectual integrity without moral integrity, right? Right. No, no, exactly. I think when I talk about becoming dumber or smarter, I don't mean your native intellectual equipment that God gave you is altered or changed, but we use it in a way that we either are on our game or we're not on our game as we employ that intellectual equipment to the task of understanding. And I'm not on my game if I don't want to be, is what I'm saying. And that's a 
purely a matter of integrity, exactly as you dis- as ex- exactly as you described. Integrity would demand of anybody, any human being, that they follow the evidence where it leads and embrace the evidence about the truth about reality. That's what integrity demands. And I am lacking integrity if I don't allow myself to be led by the evidence and the sound arguments to the truth. Yeah, but I think it's amazing how if somebody doesn't have the moral integrity to want to be intellect, to want to have intellectual integrity, how you can see them come up with the most brilliant ways exactly. of justifying unbelief. Exactly. In ways that it, it must have taken them more work. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly right. I mean, and I'm sure you've all experienced that. Some people come up with the stupidest arguments. They are absolutely brilliant to be that stupid. No dumb person could be that stupid. There is a kind of, it's intellectually dazzling how creative they have become in finding a way not to believe what's right in front of them. Right, the Dawkins of this world. Exactly, yeah. I think that some of the language Paul uses here, particularly with that you're making yourself intellectually dumb and so on, is speaking directly to Jewish culture and their emphasis on learning the Talmud and the repetition and so on. And it's, to me, he's saying you're not doing the work. I mean, you know, being a Jew, that you're supposed to do this work and you're not doing it. Yeah, exactly. Remember, there's that statement that Jesus made. I, think, I can't remember if he was talking to the Sadducees or the Pharisees, but Bruce Metzger claimed that the Jewish culture of the first century might very well have been the most universally educated culture in all of human history. And to that culture, he says, have you not read? It's one thing to know it and be familiar with it. It's another thing to be sharp enough in the way you're thinking about it that you grasp the implications. And so he challenges them. Have you not read? Okay. We've got a few more minutes. So let's go at least one more paragraph here then. Therefore, leaving behind the account that constitutes the beginning of an understanding of the Messiah, let us press on to completeness in our understanding of him, not again laying a foundation of repentance from death-causing deeds and of belief in God, a foundation of instruction about ritual washings and about the laying on of hands and about the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come. And this we will do if God permits. Now, I'm not sure I fully digested exactly why the things in this list are on this list. I'm pretty sure I don't understand it as clearly as one needs to understand it. But in general, it's pretty clear what he's doing. This list, repentance from death-causing deeds, belief in God, instruction about ritual washings and about the laying on of hands, about the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come, that's the milk that he had just described in the last paragraph. That's what would constitute milk. It would also constitute the elements of the beginning of God's revelations or God's teaching. Or here, the account that constitutes the beginning of an understanding of the Messiah in the first sentence here. That is, if you understand these things, the things on that list, then you have an account that is the beginning point for understanding the Messiah. You got to understand this first. And if you understand this, then you can be led on into a coherent understanding of Jesus and his death and resurrection. So what he's saying in this letter is, I'm going to leave that behind. It looks to me like it would be beneficial for me to go back and revisit all these things and reteach these things to you, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave that behind. 
leave behind the account that constitutes the beginning of an understanding of the Messiah, let us press on to completeness in our understanding of him. So what I want to do instead is begin to develop the picture of what Jesus' role actually was in the story of salvation. I'm going to press on and finish the picture that emerges from the gospel. I'm not going, once again, to lay a foundation of all these things. I'm not going to do that. As beneficial as it would appear that it would be to you, that's not where I'm going to spend my time. So we are going to press on if God permits. And you see what he's saying there is, it's going to require God doing something in your hearts, in your insides, to make you open and ready to hear it. Otherwise, I'm going to be wasting my breath because you're just going to take what I say and mix it all up and make it seem hard and obscure and you're just going to become obtuse and it's not going to make any sense to you and I'm wasting my time. But if God permits, he's going to touch your heart and make you ready and open and what I have to tell you will be exactly what you need to set your doubts aside and resolve your belief and and keep on keeping on in the faith. So God willing, that's what I hope will happen by my explanation. Now, I say I'm not exactly sure why of all the things he could pick, these are the things on the list. I think to really understand it, we'd want to draw a line between these things and the gospel itself to see how exactly are these the beginning of an understanding of the Messiah. Some of them are pretty clear, I think. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from death-causing deeds we know all too well how easy it was to be a Jew in the first century and not have any clue about the need for repentance. In every story so far we've heard from Messianic Jews, where did their belief in Jesus ultimately start? From repentance. They came to realize, Jew though I am, I have not been living the way I need to be living. I am not doing what I need to be doing. I'm not the kind of person I need to be. I need to change my whole relationship with God and reality. Something's not right here. I need to turn around. That repentance from, I'm calling it death-causing deeds, because they're the deeds that, on the basis of which we deserve condemnation to death. Well, I need to repent of those deeds. Well, if you don't understand that, Jesus isn't going to make any sense. And Jesus' death on the cross is going to be complete nonsense if you don't believe that. So that's pretty clear why that's on the list. Repentance from death-causing deeds and of belief in God. Well, certainly that's kind of a no-brainer. If God doesn't exist, how do we make sense out of Jesus, the Messiah, the gospel, and anything of the sort? But I think what he means here is not just belief in God as a piece of an intellectual worldview. Because you're talking to Jews, right? So I think what he means by belief in God, if he were to go back and revisit this, and reteach these Jews who are theists to believe in God, what would he be teaching them? I think what he would be teaching them is what are the personal existential ramifications of God existing? If God exists, if there is a God, and this God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what does that mean? What implications does that have for how you must conduct your life and how you must live your life? I think that's what he would underline if you were to go back and revisit that. Otherwise, belief in God is just an empty philosophical concept. You know, do you believe in God? Yeah. You going to do anything about it? No. I mean, that's so easy. I don't have to do anything about it. No. What he wants you to understand is, I believe in God, yes, and that costs me everything. That costs me my whole existence. I have to subsume my whole existence 
under the truth that there is a God who exists. A foundation of instruction about ritual washings. Your translation probably has baptisms. A baptism is just a being immersed in water. If you ever go to Israel, you'll see dug up these pits that they would fill with water, the Jews would fill with water, and they would go through daily rituals of bathing, immersing themselves in these baths, these ritual baths. They literally have two sets of stairs, one to go in and one to go out. You go in unclean, you come out clean. That's what he's talking about, these ritual bathings that were a part of their practice of the Mosaic Covenant. Well, instruction about those ritual washings. Well, what would that instruction look like? I'm not sure I know exactly what Paul would say, but it would probably have something to do with the need for purification. My fundamental problem is I'm unclean, and unless I am made clean, I die. My destiny is condemnation and death. So there has to be a cleansing. Well, you're not going to understand Jesus' death on the cross if you don't understand the need for a cleansing because Jesus' death on the cross is all about the way God ultimately cleanses us. And cleanses is just throughout the book of Hebrews, I think throughout the New Testament, is a metaphor for forgiveness. It's not a metaphor for transformation from evil to good. It's a metaphor for forgiveness. Having the guilt of my sins removed from me so that my sins are no longer relevant to how God is going to deal with me. If I'm impure, my sins are relevant to how God is going to deal with me. If they have been washed away, they have become irrelevant to how God is going to deal with me. That's the cleansing. But if I don't even have those categories, if cleansing is not even a meaningful concept to me, how am I going to understand Jesus? Instructions about ritual washings and about the laying on of hands. Okay, what is he talking about there? There, I think he's talking about in the sacrificial system when you offer offerings to God. And I am a complete novice at this. The only two that I know for sure is the ritual of the scapegoat. The hands of the high priest were placed on the two goats before the one was offered and the one was sent off into the, led off into the wilderness. But it was a very important part of the ritual that the high priest's hands were placed on, I think it's the head of the animal. That's the laying on of hands, I think, that he's talking about. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, if I remember correctly, lays his hands on the bull before they kill it and take the blood. That's the laying on of hands. And if I'm not mistaken, I may be mistaken, don't trust me on this, but I think that there are certain kinds of propitiatory offerings where the worshiper, before he hands the animal over to the priest, has laid his hands on the animal. I believe that's true. In any case, wherever you find them, you find this act of laying your hands on a sacrificial animal before the ritual with that sacrificial animal takes place. Paul says, if you understand the role that's playing in the sacrificial system, you're going to be in a lot better position to understand what Jesus was doing on the cross. You have to understand the significance of the worshiper laying their hands on the offering. Now, like I say, I don't know exactly where Paul would go with that. I would love to know. I would love to hear him lecture on that. But alas, it'll have to wait. About the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come. So if we don't really understand the truth and the significance of my destiny coming to a 
terminus in this life, in this side of eternity, where I will either be raised from the dead or I will be condemned to death. If I don't understand that that's what's at stake, how on earth am I ever going to make any sense out of Jesus the Messiah being crucified on the cross? I can't. There's no way. It's not possible. So that's part of the account that constitutes the beginning of the understanding of the Messiah. And that's then where he says, so I'm going to press on. I'm not going to talk about those things. I'm going to set those aside. What I'm going to talk about is putting all the pieces together and how they resolve themselves in Jesus coming, teaching what he taught, being crucified by the Romans, being raised from the dead, and ascending to the right hand of uh, the majesty on high. I want to teach you all that stuff out of Psalm 110 so that you can see that what God predicted and what God described as his purpose from long ago. Therefore, it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the Messiah was crucified. Okay, I've gone too long. We'll finish this section next Sunday.